Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. This morning's talk is part of our Work in Focus series. This series brings experts from around the world to examine iconic works of art that are presented in RA exhibitions. The goal of these uh, talks is to debunk common myths and narratives and to give fresh insight into the work's creation, history, and legacy and meaning today. Today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Fiona Bradley, who will explore one of Salvador Dali's most famous and best-loved paintings, Christ of St. John on the Cross, circa 1951. Dr. Bailey will discuss the context of Dali's iconography using the landscape of the Bay of Port Yagat, the controversy surrounding the artwork, and its place today as a great public favorite, not only in Glasgow, but far beyond. Fiona Bradley has an MA in art history from Cambridge University and an MA and a PH, I'm sorry, a BA in art history from Cambridge University and an MA and a PhD from the Courtauld Institute where she researched surrealism and blasphemy, particularly in the work of Salvador Dali. She started her curatorial career at Tate Liverpool and the Hayward Gallery, London, and has been director of the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh since 2003. Fiona has curated exhibitions and produced publications with important Scottish and international artists, and has overseen a dramatic rise in audiences and engagement activity at the Fruit Market during her time there. In 2011, she commissioned Martin Creed's award-winning work 1059, a permanent sculpture on Edinburgh's historic Scotsman Steps. And she was the curator for Scotland's contribution to the Venice Biennale. She was a member of the Turner Prize and the Paul Hamlin Award juries in 2007, and the Max Mara Art Prize for Women in 2016. In 1998, Fiona curated the exhibition Salvatore Dali and Mythology with Don Addis, who is the curator of our exhibition, Duchamp and Dali. And that exhibition was done for Tate Liverpool. So please join me in giving a warm we welcome to Fiona Bradley. Thank you. That's so nice, seeing your life flash before you like that. Um, the various credentials that I have to talk about this painting. Um, as uh, was said in that introduction, I'm mostly a contemporary curator now. I spend most of my time working with living artists and making exhibitions um, of very, very contemporary art. So it's always nice to go back to my sort of murky, surrealist past, which is what I'm doing now. And my interest in this painting, which is something that never leaves me really. Um, I'm interested in it on a number of levels, um, largely because I'm interested in Dali on a number of levels. One in particular that this exhibition I think makes really clear is the notion of public popularity versus academic mistrust. Duchamp and Dali I think are the sort of reverse embodiments of this. The art world adores Duchamp. Duchamp can do no wrong. Duchamp is the father of conceptual art. He's the artist that everyone evokes. He's the artist everybody would love to show, love to see. The art world cannot get enough of him. Dali, on the other hand, the art world loves to hate. Nobody, Dali has been unfashionable really since the moment Dali was Dali. Um, I've always worked on him and love him deeply, as does Dawn Addis, obviously, the curator of this exhibition. And the public, the public, who are the public? You know, that's something that I, we can perhaps explore later on. Who are the public? But anyway, the public or publics love Dali. They recognise, we recognise his skill, his iconography. The art world is wrong, I think. And the public, the public, we the public, are probably right. Dawn was telling me this morning that apparently the director of exhibitions here, Tim Marlowe, this is his, was his favorite painting when he was growing up. This is the painting that turned him onto art. Um, and I think it's often the way, Dali's often the first artist um, that a, the received opinion is a teenage boy um, will start falling in love with art through Dali. Maybe that was true for Tim Marlowe, I don't know. Um, but he's often an artist that speaks to us quite early on, somebody whose, whose iconography and way of painting is impressive when we're younger. Um, and I, I think it's inter I'm always interested in artists that people love to love and people who think they know a little bit more than them 
love not to love quite so much. And I'm sort of suspicious of that, and I think we should unpack that a little bit. But this painting embodies this more than most paintings of Dali's work, being famously one of, if not the most popular painting in Kelvin Grove in Glasgow. Um, some people see it as kitsch, shallow, and obvious, and some people think of it as the best painting ever, ever painted. And people come on pilgrimages to look at this painting. Um, people in Glasgow and around the world have a, a great love for it. So the painting embodies a whole set of contradictions, and I want to look at some of those, um, focusing mostly on two aspects of the work. One is it of it as an image, a painting made by Dali at a particular moment in his career and focusing on a number of his preoccupations and obsessions. Um, as um, was said in the introduction, I made a show, an exhibition with Dawn Addis about Dali's mythology, Dali's interest in mythology, and really that exhibition centered on Dali's interest in creating mythology around himself, a mythography, if you like, a persona, a personality intended to support the work. So there's Salvador Dali, Nobody really knows who Salvador Dali was. He created the image of Salvador Dali in order, he created the image of himself as a successful painter. Artists down the centuries have done this. Um, he's often sort of cited as the, as the first contemporary artist to do this, inspiring of, of an artist like Andy Warhol, who did the similar thing, create a myth around himself. You only need to think of Tracy Emin, Damien Hirst. Lots of contemporary artists do this, create a persona, a kind of a person who does the work. Um, and I think one of, the, one of my interests in Dali is his ability to do that, to, to go over and over again with the same kinds of ideas until they become part of the myth of himself and his work. Um, and the other thing that interests me about the painting, is it as an object, part of a civic collection? And we'll start with that, I think. Um, it was painted in 1951. It was exhibited at the Alex Reed and Lefebvre Gallery in London, where it was bought from the exhibition, from the first time it was exhibited by Tom Honeyman, the director of the Glasgow Museums and Galleries. He bought it for £8,200 um, and sparked an absolute national outcry at how much public money he had wasted on this painting. I absolutely dread to think how much it's now worth. I think, I, I think in the 300s of millions is what it's insured for. So you could say he got a very good deal for the city of Glasgow. Um, and his motivation was precisely that which I think people are suspicious of. His motivation was to get people into the museum. He thought if he had this painting, people would come. If he bought it, people would come. And he said in a, in a um, TV documentary some years later, he said, my job, he said, was to bring people into the galleries. If I could get Celtic and Rangers to play a football match in the gallery, I would do it. And I love that, I love that quote. I think it's his, it's his sort of interest in people and, people and what people like. But also I think part of the appeal of this painting and, and what surprised people about this painting, that in one of the most sectarian cities in Britain, this painting brings people together. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic, if you're Protestant, if you're more interested as I am really in blasphemy than anything else, this painting brings people together. People don't fight about it. They fought about how much it cost, but once they'd stopped fighting about how much it cost, they really, really like it. It started out um, in Kelvin Grove, um, and then it became the centerpiece of a new museum of religious life, St. Mungo's Museum of Religious Life. It was the highlight of that collection for a long time, and now it's back in Kelvin Grove, um, where it's displayed in a chapel-like display. So people's desire, our desire to sort of make a pilgrimage to this painting is evoked in the display in Kelvin Grove. Whether or not it's a chapel, a religious chapel, or a chapel to a very fine painting, and a painting that has collected this controversy around it, who knows. But it, it has had that hugely successful life. People love it. It was very, very hard to get Scotland to give it up for this exhibition. Very, very hard. You're very lucky that we let you have it down here. Um, because it's one of those, I think all collections have them, these centerpieces of the collection that people expect to see every time they go. And Dali's Crisis and John of the Cross is one of those for Glasgow. Um, so, yeah, a huge success in a divided city or a, a, a painting that's about, that's good at bringing people, bringing things together. So, to sort of look a little bit about how the painting, about some of the, the ideas in the painting as a painting as opposed to as an object. Um, Dali famously was inspired by a drawing by Christ of St. John of the Cross, um, the um, Carmelite 
monk associated with St. Teresa of Avila, a very fantastic, slightly hysterical saint. What drew Dali to this drawing, everyone says, or was famously, was that he felt it was Christ as viewed as if on a crucifix offered to a dying man. Man, not a woman, I don't know why. But there we are, you're dying on your deathbed and the priest proffers the crucifix for you to kiss and you'll see it looming towards you. And that inspired Dali to paint his Christ as if it's looming towards you. It's supposed to be comforting. I'm not sure it is comforting. We were looking at it just now in the exhibition. I think it's rather, rather scary, actually, the way he looms towards you. But the sense that, that Christ is coming towards you and a priest is asking you if you'd like to confess, to make your final confession. Um, there are various ideas, discussions around how Dali achieved the foreshortening of the painting. Um, whether he, he, he's said to have t taken photographs of a Hollywood stuntman tied to a board, um, to use, have used a glass floor in the studio and drawn from above that. Various ideas about how Dali achieved this foreshortening. But for those of you who've seen the exhibition, you will know that Dali is nothing if not a masterful painter and technician. He really, really knows what he's doing. And so not a problem for him to achieve this extraordinary um, foreshortening in the exhibition. Um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about Dali's faith at the time. I suppose I should offer an apology now. As, as um, was said earlier, my PhD was on Catholic blasphemy. I know an awful lot about Catholicism, but from the wrong end. I'm very, very respectful of the Catholic faith, very, very interested in faith in general, but we will be this morning looking at some things which could be quite offensive to people if they are very, very fervent Catholic. So I'm sorry. My interest is, is intellectual and academic, whilst also recognising that this is a painting that inspires some very, very strong religious feeling, and I'm very respectful of that. But first of all, we're going to look at Dali as Dali's relationship with faith, and it's not a good one in the early days. It really isn't a good one. He had a schizophrenic upbringing round about religion. His mother was a fervent Catholic. His father was a free thinker and agnostic. He refused to send Dali to Catholic school. Very interesting for me. My children go to Catholic school in Scotland. Scotland is a very, is we, in every catchment area in Scotland, you can either send your children to a Catholic school or a non-denominational school. So it's a, it's a society still that's still interested in divisions of faith. But anyway, fa Dali's father refused to send him to a Catholic school. He wanted Dali to grow up unfettered, if you like, by the, by the dogma of the Catholic Church. Nevertheless, Dali, Dali rebelled against his father, and his rebellion against his father has something of a religious element to it. And his cut, subsequent cutting off by his father, his father excommunicated him, has something, again, something of a religious casting out to it. The story of how Dali fell out with his family has to do with Dali defacing a photograph of his late mother on the one hand, and that he took up with Gala Elua, a divorcee, on the other. So the first thing to deal with is the defacing of a photograph. And again, I'm sorry if this offends people, but this is a painting from 1929 called The Sacred Heart. Parfois je crache par plaisir sur le, le portrait de ma mère. Sometimes I spit for pleasure on the portrait of my mother. So referring to this incident where Dali is said to have spat on a photograph of his dead mother. It, this picture announces a period in Dali's life of unequivocal anti-Catholicism and blasphemy. It coincides with his membership of the Surrealist Group, which lasted from about 1929 to about 1936. And arguably, at that period of his life is when he painted his most successful paintings. They're certainly the paintings on which his reputation rests. They're particularly, at this point, he, he was painting with a particularly intelligent sense of what the Catholic faith is and how it functions structurally, um, striking at the heart of the central mysteries of the Catholic faith, the chain of substitutions, son for father, culminating in the host, the notion of the body, the host, take, eat, this is my body, the, the bread substituting for the body of Christ. So this image, I think you can see Dali absolutely aware of the kind of metonymic substitutions and metaphors at the heart of the Catholic faith. It's Jesus, his hand raised in blessing, has a halo on, the sacred heart is in the, in the center of the figure. Um, the sacred heart is a symbol for Jesus as a human being, Jesus as a compassionate human being. And what Dali is doing, I think, in this painting, you see that the je in the head, sometimes I spit, I, I, Jesus. There is a blasphemous and metaphorical, metonymic substitution of Dali, the man, 
for Jesus, the man in this painting. And if you were to follow that through to its conclusion, is it Jesus saying sometimes he spits for pleasure on the portrait of his mother? Deeply offensive, a deeply, deeply offensive painting. So he's blaspheming against his own mother and he's blaspheming against the Virgin Mary. He's also pairing himself with Christ and this will become important for us later on. Nothing if not um, ambitious, Dali, nothing if not arrogant and to pair himself with Christ and God, absolutely par for the course. Um, so here we have him measuring himself, if you like, against Jesus, against the word made flesh, against Jesus as the son of God. Many of his paintings in the 1920s are deeply blasphemous, very often against the host, so the symbol of the body of Christ, Christ as a man, Christ, God coming down to earth, being crucified, taken back into heaven, but the host as a symbol for that, the body of Christ. So this is the profanation of the host in 1929. I don't know if this has a... Oh, no, it doesn't have a thing that you can point at it. Um, but here, you can see at the top right of the painting, is the chalice and the wafer of the host, surrounded by a whole load, a whole host, if you like, of Dalinian symbols, Sim things that we, that we know that Dali's developing in the, in the late 20s, early 30s, very, very personal symbols of the Dalinian mythography. So you have the self-portrait mask here, a sort of weeping, drooping self-portrait of Dali, the grasshopper, over the mouth. Dali had a phobia, or he, he sort of developed and cultivated a phobia of grasshoppers and of ants, and you often find grasshoppers over the mouth, stopping the self-portrait mask speaking, and ants also over the mouth. And so you have the self-portrait mask doubled in this painting, tripled in this painting, it's at the top there as well. But just to say, just to look a little bit about the, uh, the amount of blasphemous work that Dali's doing in the late 20s, 1930s, nobody would think in the late 20s and early 30s that Dali would paint a painting like Christ as a John of the Cross. It's just unthinkable at that point. This is a deeply, deeply irreligious person. Irreligious from a point of view of knowing quite a lot. Um, very, very clearly moving in on the territory of the Catholic faith, knowing exactly what he's doing and exploring the power of using the iconography of the Catholic faith against itself. The other thing that happens in 1929 is that he meets Gala Eloire. And in the exhibition, I, I hope most of you have been into the exhibition, there are some really, really beautiful, tiny photographs that I've never seen before of Gala and Dali on the beach with Duchamp, which I, I wasn't aware of that moment. But these are two photographs of Dali and Gala, which I, I particularly, the one on your left, I think is a really beautiful photograph. And I love to show it. Um, because it's, it's a record of the time in 1929 when the Surrealists came down to check Dali out. They came down in 1929 because he'd been making some waves, he'd been making some really good paintings, and the Surrealists in Paris started to take notice of him. And André Breton sent Paul Éloire, the poet, and his wife, Gala, the art dealer, Camille Germans, and René Magritte and his wife, to go down to Cadiz in northern Spain, where Dali lived, right on the beach, to check him out to see if he was as intelligent and as interesting as they thought he might be. And they spent a summer at this very, very beautiful coastal town of Cadiz, which you can still go to, and Dali's house in Cadiz is there, and the boat that you see in many of the paintings is still there. It is like walking into one of Dali's paintings. It's utterly extraordinary. I would urge you to go. Absolutely beautiful. So they came down this party of surrealists to check out Dali, and Gala Eloua on the left, so she was... Paul Eloire's wife, she had also been married before. She hasn't got a very good track record, Gala. Um, she fell in love with, with people quite easily. And they, they find Dali a beautiful, beautiful man. I think there's no shadow of a doubt that Dali, at that age, there he is on the left and the right, rather attractive. There he is in his swimming trunks, mostly. You only ever see pictures of him sort of in his either in his swimming trunks or in beautiful summer clothes, very, very tanned, very, very intelligent, and very attractive. Um, and Gala never left. Gala stayed there. She said, well, Eloua, Paul Eloua, you go back to Paris. I'm going to stay here. And she never left Dali after that. They fell in love that summer. They eventually married. And that is another reason for his estrangement from his family. So on the one hand, you have him 
blasphemously defacing photographs of his mother and taking up with anti-Catholicism, which shocked his father, even though his father was not a Catholic himself, but felt it was disrespectful to Dali's mother. On the other hand, you have him taking up with Gala. And what he does when he first starts taking up with Gala is to absorb her into his private mythography. So on the left is the lugubrious game, the Jeu Lugubre, which is the painting that Dali was working on when the party of surrealists came down to meet him. This is the painting. These are the kinds of paintings that got them interested in him. Highly, highly detailed, hallucinatory, feverish paintings. Um, and what Dali does when he falls in love with Gala, so Gala, on, it's one of those juxtapositions that one should never make, I should say, because this is absolutely tiny. It's a doily, it's the size of a, of a postcard, and this is a huge painting. So it's slightly, you know, the thing you can do on a slideshow, which you can't do in an exhibition. Um, but you can see on the right, there's the, there's the portrait, the photograph of Gala, absorbed into Dali's obsessions into the things that Dali's working on at the time. So you can see the self-portrait mask here, Dali's self-portrait, sorry, back in the screen, the grasshopper, and various, various images that Dali's working on at the time. And what he does is he sucks Gala into that, and she becomes part of his iconography. And that's really important. Gala as part of the myth that Dali constructs around himself is, I think, vital in an understanding of Christ's St. John of the Cross and Dali's work generally. So Gala doesn't leave catechos with her husband. Dali claims later that he recognised Gala. The minute she came down to catechos on the coast that summer, he recognised her as the principal absence in his life. She is what he has been waiting for. She, there's a big hole in his life and it's Gala-shaped. And she arrives, fills that hole, and that's him. So she stays with Dali, she becomes his lover, his business manager, his mediator to the world. She speaks on Dali's behalf to the world. And eventually, he manages to marry her, but only eventually, it takes him rather a long time. This double exposure photograph is, I think, again, important, and one of the kind of portents, really, for what happens later on. This is at Port Egat. This is the, this is the landscape in the background of Christ of St. John of the Cross. This is where Dali lived. That very, very recognisable rocky outcrop on the left, across the bay, across the bay at Catechase. And here you have Gala kind of appearing like some kind of spiritual apparition. Um, it's, a, it's a trick of photography. It's just a double exposure. It's just something gone wrong. Um, can you all see her? She's sort of sitting. It's quite hard to see in flyport. She's, sort of, she's just her head's on a level with his. He's in a different scale. She's just been beamed in into the middle there. So it's almost like he's conjured her up. And in Dali's sort of fake autobiography, The Secret Life of Salvador Dali, where he writes about his life, not very truthfully, but incredibly interestingly, um, this moment where, where Gala arrives in his life and is recognised as the person he's been waiting for all his life, as his muse, if you like, um, I think this is, a, this is the photograph that really sums up. But if you haven't read The Secret Life of Salvador Dali, I don't know if they're selling it in the shop, I urge you to do so. Buy it for people as a Christmas present. It's fantastic. Very, very good read. Um, so throughout Dali's, Dali's painting life, from this point onwards, from 1929 when they meet onwards, there are various incarnations of Gala. He paints her over and over and over again. He paints her so much that she ceases to signal as herself and starts to signal as part of Dali's mythology, as part of his iconography. So his, she is his muse and his mature paintings are signed. He, he creates a kind of composite identity. His mature paintings are signed Gala Salvador Dali with the Salvador often in brackets. Um, so she, the, the two of them, Gala Salvador Dali, become almost like one person. At one point in The Secret Life, he writes, it's mostly with your blood, Gala, that I paint my paintings. So there's something incredibly kind of, I don't know, almost creepy, I suppose, in the very, very closeness that he recognises her as part of himself, as something he was lacking. So in his paintings of her, one of the, one of the roles that she takes up and the, probably the most relevant in terms of the painting that I, we're discussing today, although I'm aware I haven't actually shown it very much, um, is as the archetypal female. Um, and the archetypal female we come across most often is, of course, the Virgin Mary. So he paints Gala as the Virgin Mary. There's a lot going on in this painting, painting from 1949. Um, I want to talk a little bit about it 
um, with reference to Christ's St John on the Cross. So on the right is a photograph of Gala in the same pose. I'm not sure about the dates that have been written under there, but anyway, possibly, it's a little bit later. And on the left is this painting of Gala as the Madonna of Port Ugat. So Port Ugat is where they live, just outside Cadiz. So the Madonna of Port Ugat, in a way, Dali's saying, okay, you've got the Virgin of Guadalupe, you have the various virgin apparitions of the Virgin, this is mine. This is the Madonna appearing to me in Port Ugat. This is my own version of that extraordinarily potent notion of the vision of the Virgin Mary. And he paints Gala sitting pretty much where she's sitting in that photograph, where she beams in, in double exposure. She's sitting in the sea. She's sitting in the bay or hovering, coming to, towards us from the bay of Port Ugat. Um, the rocks on either side, again, you recognize from Christ St. John of the Cross sites it absolutely in Port Ugat. Um, so very important, I think, this, this notion of the home territory, home turf, home ground that Dali's painting on. Um, in the painting, I don't know if you can see, Gala is wearing a wedding ring. Um, she wasn't, they weren't married at the time. Gali, Dali famously takes this painting to an audience with the Pope, asking the Pope if he will annul Gala's marriage to Eloire so that Dali can marry her. Marry her. The Pope says no. Um, they do marry in the end. They don't marry until Eloire dies, um, but they do marry when Eloire eventually dies. So he, they do get to get married, but the Pope says no. So the wedding ring in this painting is a, is a mystic marriage. Dali has a track record of taking paintings to see people. He took his Metamorphosis of Narcissus to see Freud in the 1930s to convince Freud that he was a very intelligent painter. He's right. Freud recognised him um, as, as a very, very interesting painter, or not, although not one he could psychoanalyse. He said, it's the conscious, not the unconscious I see in your paintings. Freud recognising Dali as somebody who is very deliberately mining his own self-conscious, his own unconscious, mining his own obsessions to make good paintings. Freud sees right through Dali, but also sees him as a very intelligent and playful artist, which I think is important. So he takes the Narcissus to see Freud, and he takes this painting to see the Pope. Um, didn't really work out for him on either way, but I like the idea that he takes these sort of these as a badge of credentials, a badge of seriousness. So, in a way, what we've got here is is an absorption of religious imagery or use of religious imagery for his own ends. He wants to marry Gala, so he paints her as the Virgin Mary, and he takes her to see the Pope. And I've, come on, I'm really trying here. It also coincides with a, a time in Dali's life where he turns away ostensibly turns away from his earlier blasphemy and converts to Catholicism. In 1951, he gives a lecture called Why I Was Sacrilegious and Why I Am a Mystic. And he writes a mystic manifesto in which he proclaims his paranoid critical mysticism. So it's mysticism in very Dalinian terms, um, all on his own terms. And a, he has a peculiar, peculiar understanding of religion and of religious ecstasy. He says, ecstasy is the dialectic, the harmony of opposites, the two antithetical but absolutely authentic Dalis. So you have Dali the blasphemer on one hand and Dali the religious person interested in the tropes of the Catholic faith on the other and they should come together. And there is a kind of interesting collage produced for a newspaper, which this is a newspaper cutting announcing the conversion of Salvador Dali stuck on top of an image of the very blasphemous painting from 1929. So that is sort of union of very irreligious Dali on the one side, very religious Dali on the other. And in the, in the newspaper cutting, it says, it says at the end, um, one asks oneself with, um, with worry what the amalgamation, what this amalgamation will give, an amalgamation of the surrealist experience and a Renaissance classicism. Dali says, I'm interested in religion, now I want to look at a Renaissance classicism and bring that together with my former blasphemy and see what we get. And the newspaper cutting says, I wonder what we will get. And we imagine that we get, really, what we get is Christ of St. John of the Cross and the painting of Gala that I just showed because the Madonna of Port Ligat is modelled on Piero della Francesca's Brera altarpiece. You can see that it shares the central axis of the Madonna and the child sitting underneath a shell with an egg suspended above her head. Now, so in, this is, this painting, you could see, is an amalgamation of Renaissance religious painting and Dalinian, Dalinian-ness. Um, 
more than an amalgam, I think it's an invasion. You've got Dali kind of moving in, really, on someone else's territory, moving into the Catholic territory with his own concerns. Him and Gala are symbolic of all male and female roles, mother and son, brother and sister, husband and wife. She's the archetypal feminine, then Dali is the archetypal masculine, the men. So the fact of Gala as Madonna, I think, is quite easy. You know, he's in love with Gala, he wants to paint her as the most iconic woman the Virgin Mary, that's quite easy. But what role does Dali take up in this? I think as, as Dali paints Gala all, often and often and often through his life, you rarely see Gala without Dali there as well. Remember that, that signatory, Gala, Salvador, Dali, they're one person by this stage. So where's Dali in this? And the clue, I think, in terms of this painting is lying with the egg, is in the egg. For Piero, for Piero della Francesca, the egg is a symbol of eternity, of perfection, of something whole, which has potential for life within it, but it is a perfect symbol. For Dali, also a symbol of perfection, and therefore of Gala. He paints, it's also, I think, a reference to another painting, another incarnation of Gala. So here she is, the Virgin Mary, and here she's Leda, Leda Atomica. Now, Dali is obsessed with the vision, with the myth of Leda. Just refresh our minds, I'm sure you all know the myth of Leda. Leda, classical mythology, Leda is visited by Zeus in the form of a swan who whispers in her ear and then has his wicked way with her and it gives rise, what she lays an egg, it gives rise to two doubled yolks, two sets of twins. Um, Pollux and Castor on the one, and, and from one, Pollux immortal, Castor mortal, and Helen and Clytemnestra in the other. Helen immortal, Clytemnestra mortal. So the egg in, in classical mythology terms has this reference to the myth of Leda and the Swan. So the woman, Gala in this case, being visited by the most powerful king of the gods, most powerful person in classical mythology. It's, in this painting, it's an enunciation scene, I think. You have the winged carrier of the woman's destiny whispering in her ear what's going to happen to her. And it's worth remembering, I think, that there was a legend particularly popular in the early part of the 20th century that the conception of Jesus was in fact achieved by the introduction into her ear of the breath of the Holy Ghost. When the angel appears to Mary and says, you are going to bear God's child and he's going to be called Jesus. There's a, there's a popular understanding of that, very popular in the earlier 20th century, that what happens is that the word of God enters the Virgin Mary through her ear and Jesus is conceived. Dali, as I've said before, very, very bright, very well read. I think it's very highly likely that we'll have known that, this myth. So it is a, it's an enunciation theme. In this painting, the egg is whole, it's unbroken. In this painting, the egg is broken, the bottom here half an egg. So it's hatched, maybe, or it's been broken. So Gala, therefore, in this painting, although it's an annunciation scene, she's being told she's going to be a mother, she also already is a mother because the egg has broken. So if she's a mother, who is she the mother of? Dali. All men are Dali, all women are Gala. Dali had a brother who died before he was born. It's very useful for my purposes and our purposes today. Um, so Dali had a brother who died before he was born. According to Spanish custom, the brother... The firstborn son was named after the father. Dali's father was called Salvador. So Dali's brother was named Salvador when he was born. When he died, Dali became the firstborn, so he was also named Salvador. When he was born, he was named both for his father and for his dead brother, which is kind of gruesome, I think. But in his writings, Dali plays with the gruesome implications of this, entwining it with the le legend of Castor and Pollux. So Dali becomes... When Castor dies, Dali then becomes Pollux. So is, is Dali immortal? Castor mortal. The, the, sense, the, the idea of the twins, these, the, the Dioscuri twins, there's a constellation named after them, is something that interests Dali. He had a brother who died before he was born. He was named for this, for this dead brother. In the myth, Pollux, when Castor dies, Pollux is consolable at the thought of living without him for the whole of, of, whole of time, begs Zeus to let him share the death of his brother and let for them to spend alternate days in the underworld. So they become this kind of doubled figure, Castor and Pollux. And Dali is interesting, interested in replicas and doubles and things which come together. And in his writings on himself and who he is, Salvador Dali, he considers himself doubled or trebled, if you like. The son was named for the father, Dali's named for the son. So you have a lovely trinity 
of Salvador Dali. It's also obviously quite a useful name, Salvador, if you're exploring all this, the notion of the saviour. Um, so very, very fruitful line of inquiry for Dali, this notion of doubling with the son, also called Salvador. So you kind of have Gala as the mother and Dali as the father and the son, which patterns for us an older model of the Trinity and the Catholic importance of the Virgin Mary in the Trinity. So instead of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, God the Father, God the Son and the Virgin Mary, a family. Back to Christ of St. John of the Cross. Sorry it's taken us half an hour to get here, but we are back to Christ of St. John of the Cross and we bring to it this notion of the importance of Gala, I hope, in Dali's life and in his work. So I suppose the question here, we talk a little bit about the painting generally, but the question we have, I think, if we're having gone through all of that, all of that understanding of what links up to this painting, painted absolutely in the same place as all these other paintings, painted in the same spot where Dali meets Gala, painted in the same spot where all the photographs of them together in the early days are, this house, this place in Port Ugat by Cadiquez, where Dali had his summer house, where they lived most of their life, together. Um, the question is, I think, is this a set for me, is it a self-portrait? Is this Dali as Christ? Um, I think, if you think not of the Dali with the wax moustache that appears on television in the later 1960s and 70s, if we think back to Dali, the very, very beautiful, very intelligent, very aspirational and aspired towards, the surrealists were desperate to get Dali in their group, then I think Possibly yes. I think what you have on that cross is a very beautiful image of a, of, a, of a man in the perfect peak of condition, as we would expect Jesus to be. Jesus, at the age, in his early 30s, on the cross, perfect man. I think we know enough about Dali to imagine that he imagines himself perfect man. So the arrogance of that, I think, yes. I think it is convincingly a self-portrait of Dali. There are other images which make you come to this conclusion. And I don't think it's a bad thing, as I say, that it's an image of Dali. I don't think it means that he has blasphemous intent necessarily, although you could see it that way. Um, this is the railway station of Perpignan from 1965, which is a huge and very complex painting and brings together an awful lot of images that Dali was interested in. And you can see in this painting, just go through some of the, the iconography of the painting. This is Gala here sitting on a wheelbarrow. We quite often in, can you hear if I stand here? Is that all right? Um, quite often in Dali's paintings, we see Gala from behind, um, watching. And it has to do with Dali recognizing Gala as coming into his life and seeing his life from afar. So Gala sitting here from behind. On the central axis, we have the crucified Christ, clearly not Dali this time. The crucified Christ, as we would expect to see the crucified Christ, with a crown of thorns and looking rather more like Christ and like Dali up the central axis. And then we have Dali twice in the middle and at the top. So down the center, we have the mother, we have the, mother the son, and the father. The sort of central axis of the Trinity down the middle of the painting. Across this, across this axis, axis of the painting, slightly more complex. Um, and I think we've got time, and bear with me. I just want to go into a little bit of detail about these figures here. This figure here and here, and what they relate to in Dali's work. And they give us a sort of another axis. Um, they relate to this painting, Jean-Francois Millet's The Angelus from 1858, which is the most, it's interesting, Dali's Crisis and John of the Cross, the most popular painting um, in the museum in which it's held. Millet's Angelus, incredibly popular. It was in the Louvre, I think it's now in the Musée d'Orsay. It was in the Louvre at the time. Really, really popular painting. It's a painting of two peasants peasants, terrible word, but that's what's always said, two peasants pausing in the fields to listen to the tolling of the Angelus bell. They're pausing in their work. Dali becomes obsessed with this painting, loves this painting, very interested in why it's so popular. It's so popular that it gets attacked, um, and Dali's fascinated in that. Why would it be attacked with a knife? Um, so he looks at it and says, you know, they aren't, they're not peasants just praying in the field waiting for the Angelus bell. What they are is a mother and father mourning their dead son. That's not a basket of apples, that's the grave of their son, or the cradle of their son. It's, we have a father, mother, and son in this painting. 
And everybody dismisses Dali, saying, don't be ridiculous, you know, this is a painting. He said, no, 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 the fact that this is so popular, this painting, it has to be, an, it has to be something more going on. It has to be a family drama. It can't just be what we think it is. And he persuades the Louvre to have it x-rayed. And underneath the basket of apples, there is a rectangular box that, an underpainting that could very likely be an earlier, it could have been a morning scene. It, this could have been the coffin of a child, which has been painted over by that basket of apples. There's no could of for Dali, obviously, he's just completely right, um, as far as he's concerned. And I've read some really interesting discussions of this painting from, there's one in particular from a, a, a very religious context saying that this painting is therefore a double, doubly important, doubly symbolic painting, that it is a, tr a trinity painting, a painting of a mother, a father and a child, as well as being peasants. Now, Dali goes rather sort of over the top about this painting, um, and they're the archetypal mother and son for him. Um, and he's, if, again, I urge you to read some things around it because it really is fascinating. I probably shouldn't go into it here. He, he, does it in, he gets into it in quite blasphemous terms, the archetypes of these two peasants, the woman and the mother. He, he, he compares the mother to a praying mantis. You know what praying mantises do? Um, after they've had their evil way with gentlemen, they do away, they eat them. Um, so he sees this, the mother figure as a somewhat terrifying figure, as well as the archetypal mother. He talks a lot about why, the, he says it's a, it's, it's a painting throbbing with sexual implications, and he talks rather a lot about why the gentleman has his hat poised over his private parts. And there's a very, there's a very Dalinian moment here when he says, and if the, if the gentleman would remove his hands from the hat, the hat would not fall. So I'll leave, I'll leave that one for you. The, in the exhibition here is the book, The Tragic Myth of Miles Angelis, that Dali wrote all about this painting. You can see that the book is in a case in the exhibition. Um, and it has, it's a, again, it's a wonderful read. Dali is, is, a, is a fantastic writer, and he writes a lot about this particular painting and why it's so important. So back to Perpignan Station. Um, you, see the peasant, you see the peasants of the Angelus. <coughs> father and the mother. You see them loading their wheelbarrow here. You see them also doing something which Dali thinks the wheelbarrow is all about, that there is a sexual position known as the wheelbarrow, which he thinks is what the, what the Angelus couple's wheelbarrow is all about. You can see that Gala is sitting on a wheelbarrow. So it's a, it's a painting kind of brimming with sort of Catholicism, blasphemy, sexuality. It's bringing all kinds of things together as it's bringing Gala, I could never say this, Gala and Dali together as well. Um, really quite, it's an enormous as well, it's an absolutely enormous painting. Um, I'm just going to show a couple of other paintings just, for, just to show the sort of the, the way that the Christ of St. John of the Cross keeps coming back in Dali's work. This is the Angel of Fort Yagat from 1952. Um, you can see in this painting, the, again, exactly the same. We're back with the, the, with the Jetty coming round, the yellow boat, the, the painting of, of Dali, Dali and Gala's hometown. And here's Gala as an angel waiting for something to come across the skies. And what she's waiting for, what she's clearly waiting, I think, it's painted afterwards, she's waiting for Christ as St. John of the Cross. She's sitting there waiting for, Gala, for Dali on his cross to come hovering in over the sea. And this painting brings them both together. This is Assumpta Corpuscularia Lapis Lazulina, um, bringing together lots of Dali's interests in science and perspective and Catholicism and Gala and himself. And you can see that this time along the central axis, we have Gala very much as the Virgin Mary, as the Virgin Mary ascending at the top. And where her heart is, is Christ of St. John of the Cross. So you have Gala, and Christ isn't John of the Cross, I think convincingly Gala and Dali. And Dali's interest in the notions of the host, in the word made flesh, in the body of Christ, has been translated into here we have the altar. Not very usual in Dali's work, a very, very classic, simple altar. If we think he's come a long way, if we think back to what he was doing with the host and the chalice in 1929, with surrounded by the sort of nightmarish visions of ants and grasshoppers and things that are very, very sort of feverish, surrealist type imagery. Here, it's a straight altar we have there, and Gala hovering above the earth. It's a completely empty landscape she's hovering above, but I can't look at that sea 
and think it's not the sea from port you get. When you see a horizon line in that kind of proportion, it seems to me that they're doing their ascending very much from port you get. It's a homely vision. I just wanted to end. I think I should probably end. Sorry, it's because I'm going to gallop through various ideas around. You know what? Oh, there we go. Bringing the painting back on and just thinking a little bit about bringing, coming back to the idea of the painting as an object. So I said that Dali was interested in the fact that Millet's painting was attacked in the 30s. This painting was attacked. It's been attacked twice, actually, but it was attacked at its most crucially and violently, it was attacked in St. In St. Mungo's with a knife. Um, and I, I am very interested in paintings which inspire attacks, paintings which, which, which in, inspire somebody so, who hates them so much or is moved by them so much that they're moved to attack them like they're embodiments of something, like they're real things. I think it's an, an extraordinary thing to do to attack a painting. And Dali was very interested. But this, so this painting was attacked in Glasgow. Somebody took a knife to it. And I'm really sorry. I have an image of the painting attacked on my phone, not on my PowerPoint. So I could either pass it around, or if anybody's interested afterwards, do come and have a look. But it's an extraordinary photograph. And it, came, it came to me from the uh, head of Glasgow City Council in the 1960s, who met Dali and was instrumental in bringing the painting to Glasgow. And he, when, when the painting was attacked, he, who is, he's the father of a friend of mine, he was presented with this extraordinary book which documents the restoration of the painting. It's a book about this size, and it has black and white photographs tipped into it, and the text is done with letraset. It's a really, really beautiful record. Of something. Imagine now it would just be a PDF you'd get sent, but it's a beautiful record of how the painting was restored. And the photographs of the damage are really extraordinary. The whole, and what, I, what I find fascinating is the bit of the painting that was attacked is the bit of the painting which is all about Gala and Dali and on the home turf on which this painting is painted, the fact that it's painted in the home setting, in the place which is impregnated with this unlawful relationship between Dali as the arch archetypal male and Gala as the archetypal female, the bit of the painting that was attacked is right here and all of this part of the painting was taken away. So what you have left was just the Christ on the top and nothing to do with the fact that it was, based, was built around Dali's own life and Dali's home ground and Dali's own concerns. And I can't help thinking, I don't know whether the person knew as, as much about Port Yagat and, and Dali's own concerns as people who study him do, but it is fascinating that that's what you're left with, a very a straight Christ, because all of this part of the painting is slashed away. And you can see it, if you go and look at it, you can see the line where the cap, it's been beautifully restored, but the painting was cut in half um, by somebody. So there we go. I thought I'd end with that, just, just the sense that it is a very complex painting, and what, what it is, I think, is a doubled painting. Christ isn't John of the Cross, perfectly straight, if a very particular perspective at the top, but what interests me about the painting is the ground on we, over which he hovers, the fact that this is the place that Dali lived, the place he lived his life, the place he develops this mythology around himself and his wife Gala, which allows him to be Gala Salvador Dali, if you like, this doubled personality, the trinity, the duality, all of that happens in the bottom part of the painting. So I think, obviously, when you see Christ on the cross, you think of the trinity, and Christ is a trebled figure. But in this painting, I think it is the duality between the home ground, the human side, the fact that people are people, and in the upper, upper side, Christ on the cross, Christ ceasing to be human, if you like, and becoming God, and becoming the icon of the Catholic faith, that Dali has this slightly ambivalent attitude towards, and very much squares up to, and finds himself equal to. So I'm going to stop talking there. Thank you very, very much for listening. I'm very happy to take any questions. As I say, if you'd like to come and look at the image, please do. I don't know if any of you are planning to go into the show after the talk, but Dawn, Addison, and I thought we'd go and look at the painting together. And I'm very happy to, we're very happy to sort of think about it together with any of you who would like to come into the show. Um, it might be a nice thing to do. But if there are any questions, do please ask me. Thank you very much for a marvellous talk. I'm quite privileged to listen to it. I have always thought that the uh, lake or the sea at the bottom uh, 
was actually uh, Salvador Dali showing that Christ was, had come to save his apostles, who were mostly fishermen, and they were their fishing boats there on the lake, and there he is above them, uh, come to give them eternal life. I think that's certainly perfectly possible, isn't it? And interestingly, one of the things that I want to look at properly, which I've never really thought about, is the relationship that Dawn has made between this painting and Duchamp's A Large Glass. And of course, there are lots of bachelors in Duchamp's A Large Glass. You have quite a few individuals in that. And I, I'm sure you're right. I think that is there. I mean, I look at it very much as a Dali painting, as and looking, looking for the clues and the threads in Dali's own life. But... I'm sure you're absolutely right that there is that there is that sense in it. He's, as I say, he's not stupid. He's capable of, and supremely, he's capable of holding of several things all at once. That's what for him religion is. It's the bringing together of opposites. So um, yes, I think it's a very nice way of looking at the painting. Actually, you said that Dali was interested in taking pictures to meet people. Yes. I wondered if he was interested in where they were shown and who owned them. That's a very interesting question. Dawn will know a lot more about this than me, but I, I know that he was happy that the painting was in Glasgow. I know he was happy that he was happy with the site that it was shown. And I can't help thinking that he, he enjoyed the fact that the city of Glasgow put it in a very sort of religious atmosphere, although it seems quite odd. Um, so he did, have, he did have a sense, although when he was, certainly when he was starting out, he pretty much would have sold them to anybody. You know, he was a classic, he needed the money, and he had various relationships with patrons whereby they would give him a salary and he would give them paintings in exchange for that, which is, which is how quite a lot of Dali paintings have ended up in this country because one of his great patrons, Edward James, was British. Um, so I think he was probably rather disappointed that Freud didn't take one look at the Narcissus and go, I must have this in my consulting room and let him take it away again. Um, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because obviously for artists, as opposed to writers, they lose their work. You know, you make a painting or a sculpture or a work of art, and it goes. It, you, sell, you need to sell it, and it goes, and you don't have it again. Whereas for a writer, you've always got your poem or your book. So I, I, but I don't know whether he was that. It's very interesting when you do a show of Dali, the people that own them. Jack Nicholson has a Dali, which always amuses me. That quite a lot of, quite a lot of Dalis that are in private hands tend to be in the hands of, of big personalities, um, people who buy a Dali. You, you have to be quite brave, I think, to own a Dali. Hi, thank you for that. You, you said that Dali was well-read and intelligent. Yes. Various other descriptions can be made of him. But, I mean, um, are you, do you know, really, if he read much and understood much about St John of the Cross? No. Who was also a bit, I mean, yes, you, I mean, who was imprisoned, who was a great figure of the Counter-Reformation and was regarded by authority at the time as dangerous. Um, and whether, uh, but also in his writings, although principally about Pratt, there's a great physicality. Mm. Um, and, and whether Dali was aware of that, or it's an interesting coincidence, I suppose. I don't know is a shorthand, a short answer, and I can't remember whether I have ever known um, whether Dali actually knew that much about St. John. His, the, the reading, the, the, the kind of reading that he did that I know more about is in psychoanalytic circles rather than religious circles. And he, you know, the Surrealists generally did, they have a fantastic history of knowing, quite, of reading quite closely the readings of, of religious figures and invading that territory with, with sort of blasphemous illustrations. There's, there's some fantastic tracts which the, which the Surrealists have illustrated to completely change the meaning of them. But Dali, to my knowledge, didn't do any work with the writings of, of um, St. John. So I don't know to that, sorry. I was just interested that you um, seem to think that Dali identifies with the figure of Christ mm. who is the savior and Salvador meaning also the savior. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered, what does Dali think he's the savior of? All mankind, I should say. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's a really good question, isn't it? I think he thinks he's this. Well, I think he thinks he's the saviour of himself. First of all, he he presents himself as somebody in need of saving, and Gala comes along and saves him. I do think he thinks he's God's gift to art, um, and why would you not? You know, this is what he does, and he does it supremely well, and he wants to be recognised for it. I think, yeah, I think he's probably the saviour of contemporary art, I would reckon. Which, to bring us full circle, is precisely what the art world think that Duchamp is. 
I'm not Dali. So maybe, maybe, we, maybe that's a question with which we should examine the exhibition. You know, which one of them actually is saving the world of art? I don't know. Um, I read somewhere that he had personal mythology for the egg, that often they're floppy fried eggs and drooping eggs in his work. And I read something that he said he named his egg uh, a memory from childhood of phosphere or something. So does he morph actual mythology with his own personal mythology absolutely. to do with the egg? Yeah, absolutely, with everything. Dali's interested in things which can be either soft or hard. You're back to your peasant with his hat that doesn't fall down. Um, a, lot of, um, a, a lot of Dali's ca calculated anxieties are around erectile dysfunction and things which, which can be hard or soft, which are soft but could be hard at certain points, and the egg comes into that. I mostly am interested in, the, in Castor and Pollux, in the Dioscuri myth around the egg. Um, but yes, there's, I mean, you, you know, you'll know that if you don't, you will know, because you're obviously uh, uh, near London, if not living in London, the extraordinary painting Narcissus, um, Dali's Narcissus, which is a hand holding the egg um, that's at the Tate. Um, it's a, one of a Dali double image where the figure of Narcissus is made up of a figure of a hand holding an egg. And if you look at it in a certain way, it looks like a figure of a boy looking at himself in a pool, and the other, it's a hand holding an egg. With that, with that painting goes along a poem where he's talking about the painting and why a hand and an egg. And in the, at the end of the painting, he's talking about the egg cracking. And when, when the egg cracks, when the egg splits, it will become the Narcissus, the new Narcissus, Gala, my Narcissus. So Dali very clearly says that he has a narcissistic approach to life, but his image of himself, the narcissistic image of himself, is himself re as reflected in Gala. It's a classic surrealist muse person, sort of position, but for Dali, when he looks at Gala, he's looking at himself, and the egg is the centre of that. You're very nice with your questions, thank you. Hi, I, th I always thought the painting was God's uh, look down on the crucifixion. Uh -huh. Yes, it pro well, yeah, I suppose it is, isn't it? God looking down and us looking up. Yeah. I think it's, I just think it's a, it's a fantastic perspective for Dali. It's so dominant, isn't it? That extraordinary domination. I think it's, it's very, very interesting. So in that perspective, that would, put, that, would put, that would give Dali the God's eye view as well, which would be even nicer, which I would like a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Uh, it is, um, you did mention, it's a, a bit of interest, a matter of record, that uh, the £8,200 that um, the Glasgow Art Gallery paid for this work was in fact, was indeed recouped within six months by charging a shilling a time to view it. Uh, and I have here, which I will give to the lady, the missing image that you've been talking about. Uh, oh, good. You were saying that the art world still strongly dislikes Dali. And in fact, I read a, a review of this exhibition, which basically said Duchamp was the great artist, Dali's the showman, and was very dismissive of this painting. Yes. Um, why We're is... here to tell you that's not true. Well, exactly. <laughs> are they unsettled by Dali being a showman when so many other artists are mm. showmen? And, um, and is it particularly also his, the religious nature of this picture, which, while it's ambivalent, is perhaps too religious for the art world? I think there is something in that. I think we mistrust, as I say, I spend most of my time with contemporary art, and I think we do mistrust religious art. I think we do mistrust artists who take, I mean, some artists have taken it on to great effect. I think there is something about that. But there is also something about, I think, the popularity. There is some, there's something incredibly snobbish about it. I mean, the person that, the, the artist that I think most closely mirrors in some ways, although his work is not simpler but less complex than Dali, is Ron Muick. Ron Muick, contemporary artist who makes very lifelike replicas of things. People love him. The most successful exhibition that Edinburgh has ever seen is Ron Merck in recent years. The art world can't stand him. And I think there's a similar, there's a similar kind of something around success, something around figuration as well. We tend to, we tend to mistrust very, very hyper-real images, which I think is the reason why this painting tends to be, tends to be dismissed. Um, maybe it's, it's just too easy. I think people see it as too easy, not hard enough. And, and that, People do mistrust Dali's double, I haven't really looked at Dali's double imagery at all today, but the, the kind of optical illusions in Dali, that they kind of, you know, see what it is yet, people mistrust that too. They can't understand, can't, 
enjoy it as a, the extraordinary visual rhyme and the very intelligent way of looking at paintings that it is, I think. People, people see it as some kind of one-liner, which when Duchamp is the ultimate father of the one-liner, it's very interesting. Not that I would raise one above the other. I think what, what this exhibition does supremely well is hold them, hold Dali and Duchamp in the kind of oxymoronic tension that, that makes them both great, great artists. So, but it, it, it is fascinating. What it, and they, I think it's something about success. We don't like success, which is a bit rubbish, actually. But there we are. Thank you. I was actually living in Glasgow, a mere child, of course, of course. Um, in the 60s when they bought uh -huh. this painting. Um, and I seem to remember that the controversy was much about, less to do with the cost, but about the fact that the painting was depicting looking down mm -hmm. on Christ, mm -hmm. whereas, and that was considered blasphemous because one should always look, look up. up. Um, is that just myth? Or? I know, I, I, probably not. I think we should, I should do some more digging about that. Probably not. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, that a, it's, it's on the face of it, a very innocent painting, that it should have always had this sense that it was a blasphemy. I think it's, I think it's blasphemous because I, th I do think Dali is putting himself in the place of Christ. I think that's, it's, it's measuring yourself against Christ. It does it for me. But, yeah. Maybe it was seen as blasphemous, right? But the, the fact that the, the, the city of Glasgow has welcomed it as a religious painting straight away, not having any of that, we don't have any of that, this is a religious painting, this is what it's doing, interests me as well. So in some ways you have people sort of worshipping this thing, which is at best ambivalent and confused, I think, in its attitude to religion. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Really it's fun. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.